I am very happy that Father Francis Orozco could join us today. He came in from Dallas. Father is the novice master for the Southern Province. And uh, how long have you been in that position? This is my second year. Second year. So I don't have a bio, Father, for you, so I hope that you will introduce yourself. But Father came to my attention. I, I asked our sisters studying at University of Dallas if they knew anyone, if they could recommend a priest to come and preach our day today. So Father comes with recommendations of our sisters. Also, we're just so pleased that you could join us today, Father. So please welcome Father Francis Orozco. Thank you very much, Sister, and I'm very glad to be here. So many of you have asked if I live here in the area, and no, I was born and raised in Oklahoma, and now I live in Dallas as the, as the novice master. There's a community, I think they call it a mission house, but there's a community of Dominican sisters in Dallas. Two of them are professors at the University of Dallas, where we have our priory, our, our house there. And then three of them teach, uh, and one is a principal at, at a Catholic school in the area. We, the Dominican friars, we offer Mass for the Sisters at 6 a.m., two days a week. So we get to know them very early in the morning, and, and sometimes, you know, we have a joke among us friars that whenever the sisters ask us to do something, we always just say, yes, sister. You never want to <laughs> turn down one of the sisters. And uh, every now and then, especially on a solemnity, on a, on a big feast day, they'll, they'll say, well, Father, because it's, uh, it's going to be a longer Mass, could we start Mass at 545 instead of 6? And we always have to say, yes, sister. <laughs> and so... Uh, uh, when they asked me, uh, you know, to consider this, you know, it, it fit in my schedule, so, so this is why I'm here. And I'm very glad to be here. It's my first time actually talking to a group of Dominican laity. I'll introduce myself, you know, in the very beginning um, of the talk. Um, but first I want to kind of give a, a short story. Um, it's not my story. It's a story from one of our friars, um, Father Joseph Paul, who's, um, uh, who's a newly ordained priest. He's in his second year of priesthood, and I live with him at the University of Dallas, uh, at our priory there. And um, he always tells this story to parents, especially um, if the parents at Mass bring, like, a, a crying child, especially an uncontrollable, inconsolable child. Um, oftentimes, the parents think that the child is disrupting Mass. Um, and while that may be true, it's also very good that they bring their children to Mass. And it's a very good thing that people see that because they know the church is growing and thriving and, and vibrant. And he always tells this story to parents, especially if they feel very self-conscious, uh, you know, their, their little baby or their, their small child is, is being disruptive. He tells them that when he was younger, when he was probably about three years old or so, three or four years old, um, for whatever reason, he was just inconsolable at Mass. He was crying and yelling and, and you know, screaming. And, uh, and his father sort of, you know, in a very embarrassed kind of, you know, picks him up and is walking him out of mass. And, and Father Joseph Paul says, I don't know why I said this, but as my dad was bringing, <laughs> bringing me out of mass, I yelled at the top of my lungs, please don't beat me in the parking lot. <laughs> and his father, he, he makes sure to tell people his father never did anything like that. <laughs> either before or after, but I think he just wanted to embarrass his father. And so the moral, in a certain sense, is, you know, we walk into something. Um, we don't know what happened before, for sure. 
And so it's always kind of a, a thing he tells parents to kind of let them realize, like, he understands where they are. He doesn't mind. And neither do any of us who have ever worked in parishes that parents bring their children. We want them to bring their children. So I kind of bring this up to say that, you know, we want to be patient with ourselves, but also with others, because we can often enter into their life during a very strange time. We don't know what happened before or during or even after. As uh, was said, I'm the, the master of novices for our province, and this is, this is my third assignment. Um, my first assignment, I was ordained in 2015, and my first assignment was as campus minister at the University of Dallas, excuse me, at Texas Tech University. I live at the University of Dallas. Um, my first assignment was as a campus minister at Texas Tech University in a small town called Lubbock, Texas, and we have a community there and a parish and a very large campus ministry program. And the students come in as freshmen, as you all know. They stay for four years, maybe five. Um, but then there's a new group of students that come in every year. There's a regular, steady rotation of new faces all the time. I was there for three years, and then I was assigned to be the director of vocations. And uh, I liked the assignment at Texas Tech. Um, but I really liked the assignment as director of vocations. It was a great deal of fun because I traveled across the country, throughout the South, talking to, to young men about, about our life. Men tell you why they want to become Dominicans or why they feel the call. So it's just a very sort of uplifting time, if you will. Um, and the idea is you sign them up to join, you know, go through all the procedures, and then you pass them on in formation. You pass them on to the novice master. So even those kind of four- or five-year relationships that I had, and they, some of them last longer after they graduate at Texas Tech. Um, as novice master, you really just have that relationship for maybe anywhere from one to two years, and then you pass them on to someone else. Now as master of novices, I'm the one who those young men go to. I'm in charge of them for this, this one year in formation. And in a way, at least I like to tell myself this, the, the Master of Novices combines those two previous roles, the role as a, as a campus minister, but also the role as a director of vocations. They're for me, they're with me, rather, for a year. And while they're with me, I, I teach them and I guide them in our, in our way of life. And these young men, they come from various backgrounds and experiences. And they all come with certain expectations or preconceptions. Some of them come with with misconceptions about what the order might be. Some have, hopefully this, they don't have it by the time they get to the novitiate, but some do have the idea that they're going to be in a kind of a, a basement, copying manuscripts for a year or something like this. And, um, and even in the Middle Ages, Dominicans, this wasn't really our calling even then. Um, but I have to remember that those men, and I knew this as vocation director, and I know this as novice master now, but they worked hard to get there. They had to go through the application process, which includes interviews and essays, a physical and a psychological evaluation, letters of recommendation, background checks, and, and several more steps. Whenever there was a problem with the novice, I would sometimes get a call. This would happen more when I was the director of vocations, but I would get a call and the other person on the line, usually another friar that he's living with, maybe the student master. Um, this is what happens when, they, when they're done with the novitiate, they go on to studies. So I might get a call from their superior, and, and he'll ask me. He'll say, how did he get here? How did he make it this far? How did he get through the process? And eventually I learned to say, no one accidentally completes the application, right? <laughs> no one 
accidentally visits a psychologist for an evaluation. It's, it's an intentional process. And that's why it's a process. You don't just sort of become ordained on day one. You, you go through this six or seven year process for that to happen. And in between, we learn more about the men and the men learn about us. And there's a mutual discernment that happens. Part of the process of discerning is, is trying out the life. And for some men it works out and for some it doesn't. And that's, that's all in, you know, in the, Lord's, the Lord's plan. None of you are here accidentally. Now perhaps it started that way, but you didn't accidentally stay. Something prompted you to be here. You had some sort of goal. You had a target. You had a resolve. You had an aspiration to grow in this way of life as a Dominican layperson, as a third order member of the order. And so our intention, your intention, isn't just to arrive, maybe that was the initial one, but it was also to enter after a while, to, to dig deeper, to, be, to become part of this. And so I want to look at some of Jesus' parables, really two of them, two very short ones. Um, in the New American Bible Revised Edition, there are headings to the different parts of Scripture. And the heading for this little section that I'll read is actually just called more parables or other parables. And I think it's called that probably because they're very short and probably because it comes after some more well-known parables, the parable of the sower and the mustard seed and the parable of the, of the yeast. Um, so this is Matthew chapter 13. It's just verses 44 through 46. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field which a person hides, which a person finds and hides again, and out of joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant selling fine pearls. When he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all that he has and buys it. So there's this treasure in the field, and then the kind of parable ends. And then there's this pearl of great price, and the parable ends. It would, both of the parables will have this phrase, this, this sell all. It would be a shame to sell all and never examine the field that you bought. It would be a shame to sell all and never do anything with that pearl that you paid such a great price for. And as Dominicans, one of the things that we do is examine that field, is do something with that pearl. One of our mottos, as I'm sure you all know, is to contemplate and to share with others or to give to others the fruits of that contemplation. And right now, I want to focus uh, this morning anyway, this first talk on, on that first part, on contemplation, on prayer. In contemplation, we, we gain experience. In contemplation, we grow in our love of God. We grow in our vocation. In contemplation, what we're doing is we're making a sacrifice of time, because we know, but also God knows, that we set aside this time to be with him in some way. I'm going to read a couple of of short excerpts, one from from Father Peter John Cameron's book called Why Preach, and another one from a book called The Way of the Disciple. And I have them them right here. (laughs) Um, In Why Preach, uh, this is near the beginning of the book, And he just talked about experience, 
Our experience, he says, has to be a starting point. And to summarize very shortly, he says, what we learn from experience is that true meaning, true meaning is not found just inside of us. So I'll read this this section. He says, Tragically, many people live separated and distanced from their elementary experience. They subsist without an awareness, a sensitivity to the original design and demands of their hearts. And without that awareness, if they venture to explore life in order to make sense of it, the only thing left for them with which to begin is an abstraction. If a person lives divorced from his own heart as a criterion for all fulfillment, then that person gives up the search for what corresponds with that heart. To that extent, he forfeits the chance for real happiness. Pope John Paul II, the great champion of the, of the new evangelization, once stated that the basic human drama is the failure to perceive the meaning of life, to live without a meaning. This is what happens when people lose touch with their elementary experience, with the original needs of their own hearts. Yet that loss of perception began to infect mankind the moment that Adam and Eve committed their sin. We live without a meaning because we live enmeshed in the effects of original sin. Original sin distorts our reason so that we contrive to contort reality to conform to our own ideas, our whims, our will. The sabotage of original sin dupes us into measuring reality according to some prefabricated standard of our own concoction. That is, we minimize the ultimate meaning of things to something that we can comprehend, manage, dictate, and manipulate. We want to remake things according to our own measure. Original sin attempts to identify the total value of everything with something that we can conceive of and understand to base reality on some aspect of our own selves. If someone succeeds in recreating God, God in quotes, according to his own image and ideas, then reality gets reduced to an idolatry over which he presides as the sole indomitable deity. At the same time, the more we strive to explain everything by way of an idol, the more miserable we become because an idol simply can never be enough for us. Never. An idol is not something within some an idol is not something within something that the infallible heart craves. The tyranny of original sin may be strong, but the desires of the heart are stronger. The heart knows infallibly what corresponds to its longing. It knows infallibly whether or not something satisfies it. The dilemma of original sin constitutes one of the most formidable obstacles that a preacher will ever have to face. For how do you preach about God to people who have decided to depose him and put themselves in his place? No God is useful if usurped. Thus, the preacher contends with an impossible impasse. Those under the spell of original sin, namely ourselves, are the ones who need to hear the good news more than anyone else. Yet they are the first to dismiss preaching as insipid, futile, even fatuitous. He says, it's the preacher's vocation to give people back their hearts. If the preacher has an appreciation of elementary experience, 
of the genius of the human heart, then he stands a chance of freeing his hearers from original sin's idolatrous individualism. How? By introducing people to what is more original to them than original sin, namely, namely their I, that is, the salient facts proper to their humanity. For the remainder of the chapter, he talks about what those are. It's the idea that we are created in the image and likeness of God, that we are made for something more than here on earth, that our life is limited, but it's also eternal in heaven, and he expounds on this. We need that, that union with God that requires time in contemplation. In the section that I'll read from the way of the disciple, the author is using an image of being wet clay in God's hands. He says this. He says, The authentic Christian is the person whose heart is perpetually open like the good earth to receive all these seeds of the world into itself and to water them with the tears of love and compunction and desire in order to allow them to come to full harvest in the Lord's sight. Consider in this connection two key passages from the first pages of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. In both of those places, we see at the very beginning of God's creation, water is an essential element. Absence of water will always be the biblical symbol of the soul's need for redemption, the condition in which the clay of my being, once mixed with the water of the Spirit's grace, has become desiccated through sin and indifference, dry, rigid, brittle, dead as bones. If I put myself in God's hands in this state, his mighty touch would not shape me. It would destroy me and return me to mere dust. Psalm 68 states, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. We must we must pray with Gerard Manley Hopkins when he says, Lord, send my roots rain. Pray to become like wax before the advancing fire of his holiness, wax that is only too glad to be changed by heat into a new and more useful shape, glad even perhaps to be consumed as it feeds the beauty of a burning, living, light-giving flame. Where in my own life and experience have I found that spring of water in the midst of the Garden of Eden that makes it possible for God to shape the Adam in me into a living being softened by the clay of the ground and making it malleable, responsive to the divine sculptor's hands? We must discover at the center of the garden of our lives the hidden spring of water that God has surely hidden there. We must continually return to it like the Samaritan woman to her well. Discovering that deep well within ourselves is perhaps the central activity of our spiritual search. That discovery goes hand in hand with my response 
to what the Lord says to us through Jeremiah. Like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The hidden spring must water the clay of my being for as long as I am the as long as I am on the potter's wheel. Once we realize, once we look, sometimes we look within ourselves, and that's not a bad thing, but once we realize we need something more, then we can truly be receptive to what God has in store for us. We have this, this treasure buried in a field, but we have to dig it out. We buy that field, we know the treasure is there, but we have to put in the work to unearth that treasure. We have this, this pearl that we paid a great price for. And so we don't want to keep it hidden. We want, to, we want to show it to others. One of my professors in seminary would say, would often say that we pray, that when we pray, that we're often like children who are crying at mass. He would do this, this very quick impression of a child crying, you know, wailing, just bawling uncontrollably. And he would say, this is what God hears And he would look at all of us. He'd say, this is what God hears when you're praying. He would hear you crying and whining and just being uncontrollable. And now, like any good father or mother, God would come running at the sound of of a child crying, of us crying. But consoling the child can't happen. Nobody can help the child until first the child stops crying. Because a child has to be receptive to what the father or the mother is going to give us, to what God is going to give us. Prayer is a kind of, of wasting time. If we think about this, prayer is, is this union with God, being, being with God, God who loves us, God who, who we love. Lovers, if we think about it, they never tire of wasting time together. They just stare into each other's eyes. They can be with each other, not saying a word. And the love between them is, is being nourished. It's, it's growing. When I was a student brother myself at Mass, once I was sitting behind this family and there was this little girl, maybe three years old, and she was being held in her father's arms and kind of in her neck, kind of like this. I could just kind of see her head from where I was. This little girl was sort of sinking into his father, into her father, excuse me, this little girl, at least in my mind, she, she, was, she was safe. She probably felt very safe. She felt embraced. She was at rest. She was completely under the protection of her father. She was sinking back into that identity as a child of her loving father. There's a sister, Ruth Burroughs, OCD, a discount Carmelite, And she says this about prayer. She says, the act of prayer, the essential act of prayer is to stand unprotected before God. And what will God do? He will take possession of us. She says, the act of prayer is standing unprotected before God so that we can allow God to take possession of us. Prayer is this this Poverty before God, the idea that that I've got to give, I've got to give something is really just me, because there's nothing else I can give God. God doesn't want um, our dissertations or our studies so much. He doesn't want our our money. He wants 
He wants us. Prayer is a type of surrender. We put down our, our weapons, our defenses, and when we do that, he's immediately ready to rush in. All we have to do is stop resisting. That child who's crying, the crying has to stop first before he can get some sort of actual help. We have to stop resisting. We have to stop putting up the defenses, whether whether they're intentional or not, before God can really take possession of us. When that child stops crying, the child more easily notices the father. The lover's we're staring into each other's eyes. What they're doing is they're being vulnerable with each other. They're surrendering to each other. And so they trust each other more completely because they're not hiding anything from one another. Sister Ruth Burroughs again says, she says, the true nature of prayer is that it is essentially God giving himself to us. Now perhaps we say or we know someone who says, I want proof. I want evidence of this prayer that I'm talking about. When we're left unsatisfied with with logical arguments about something, we usually do want proof. If I find it difficult to, to believe your claim, I'm going to ask you to show me. When it comes to God, specifically even to Jesus, and the claims that we make about him and the salvation that he offers, there comes a point where we have to say, okay, that's all well and good. I understand, I think, what you're saying, but but I'm going to have to see it for myself. When we reach that point, and all of us will, or perhaps we have, maybe we've reached it and we didn't really know we did, but when we reach that point, there's really only one thing that we can do. We have to engage God. It's one thing to read about him or to watch some documentary about some aspect of of our faith, but eventually we have to engage the faith. We have to participate in it. And the way we do that with God is to pray. This is something I told, I would tell college students all the time. They'd want, they would say, like, I want to grow in faith. And, you know, I'd tell them what they, ask them what they were doing, and they would tell me, then usually prayer wasn't part of that. <laughs> usually it's, well, I participated in this event, or I went to this talk, or I went to this thing, or I watched this video, or this you know, this conference, these youth conferences. And I said, well, let's talk about your prayer. We're going to have to pray. That's how we, we engage God. That's how we come face to face with him. And I don't just mean sort of stopping and starting frequently, sort of crying out once every now and then because we have some desperate need just to see if God will come through in a way that's, that's kind of like testing God. An analogy is if, I would go to the gym just 30 minutes once a year and I'm hoping to see some sort of result, it's not going to happen. 30 minutes once a year is not going to sort of make the results of going to the gym regularly, you know, happen. I would have, I did this and I would say, well, I have no personal evidence that going to the gym is useful. Other, other people tell me it's useful. I go to the gym and look what's happened to me. I went once and it didn't, it didn't work. You know, if we expect some sort of substantial experience of the divine, then we're going to have to follow this this path that's marked out for us. Prayer, if we just do it one time and we say, well, look, I'm still the same, nothing's happened. But then somebody who's had a a regular prayer life, who's who's praying regularly for a long time, then you're going to see a difference in them. 
if we expect some, some substantial experience of the divine, we must be willing to, to follow the path that's marked out for us and abandon our, our own path. We must be willing to pray, but also pray with a steadfastness, with an openness to God who we're reaching out to. And what God wants isn't methods. Methods are helpful. They're good. But more than anything, God wants faithfulness. He wants us to build the habit of prayer. He wants us to do it regularly, preferably daily. There's really no other way to come into contact with a person. There's no other way to come into contact with God. Otherwise, we're approaching, you probably heard some of these analogies, but we're approaching a kind of a a vending machine or an ATM or some sort of piece of software. If I put in my credit card or a dollar bill or I type in this specific code, I get these predictable and immediate results. Some people see God that way. Or we think it's sort of like magic. If I say these words in the right way, then I get what I want. If I pray this 54-day novena, then God will make this thing happen for me that I really want him to do. Prayer is good, but we don't want to put conditions on that. God will give us himself in the way that he sees fit. This isn't the divine. If we think of God as an ATM or a vending machine or sort of some like genie in a bottle that we say the right thing, he'll grant us three wishes. This isn't the divine omnipotent, infinite, an imaginable God who longs to love us intimately. Lots of people in our world believe in this kind of God versus the real one. If we want to know the real God, then we have to enter prayer with, with open hands, ready to receive whatever God wishes to give us, whether it's good or bad or bad in our eyes, because God will never give us anything bad. We may think it is at that moment, but we have to be ready to receive whatever God gives us with steadfastness. We don't leave the path that he has for us simply because it becomes difficult or we think it's going to lead us nowhere. What we have to do is, is basically remain there. We have to be ready to receive and remain there until he gives. We have to stay that path, be ready to receive, And when he gives it to us, we remain there, remain there on the path, even if we're not sure exactly where it's leading us. And so I'll end this morning with a prayer. So we let us pray. God, I stand before you empty and naked. And I believe that you will hear me when I turn to you in sincerity, because I have no one else to turn to. I do not want to go on without you because life without you is unimaginable. And so I ask you with open hands and open heart to please reveal yourself to me in a way that I can understand. I trust you the best that I can. You love me with an unfailing love. With confidence in that love, I beg you, take hold of me, guide me to yourself. 